the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Hope you're cool someplace. Um, there are cooling centers if you're in need. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we're going to hear a conversation with Morgan Tyree, author of Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity. I don't know about you, but I could benefit from all three of those things. That'll be in the 5 o'clock hour, the second hour of today's program. Well, as was anticipated and hinted at yesterday, people in Oregon age five and older will be required to wear masks indoors in public places. That's regardless of your vaccination status. And that starts on Friday, August the 13th. That, according to Governor Brown, who renewed the statewide face mask mandate during a briefing on Wednesday morning. It's part of the state's effort to reduce an increase in hospitalizations with the spread of the highly contagious Delta variant of the coronavirus. We'll put that into perspective and giving you some numbers a bit later. But for those riding up public transit, the mandate applies to adults and children older than two, though the mandate doesn't require masks in crowded outdoor settings. The state still strongly encourages that people wear masks in those situations as well, but it is not required. Exceptions are allowed for activities where it would be, well, impractical or impossible to wear a mask. An example, while eating or drinking, during swimming and organized competitive sports, and for performances involving singing or speaking in public. Well, the latest science is pretty clear that both vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals are able to spread the Delta variant, the governor said. Masks are simple and they're effective. Wearing a mask should give you confidence that you are not infecting others. So the uh, the storyline goes that if you are vaccinated, uh, you may contract the Delta variant, but you won't get very sick. Uh, you may not get sick at all, but you may be a carrier. That's what we're being told. Well, the governor's office said the Oregon uh, OHSA uh, will play a role in enforcement of the mask mandate for employers and employees. The Oregon um, uh, Health Authority will work with businesses that are attempting to comply and won't um, conduct inspections or issue fines initially while businesses start implementation of masking protocols. That suggests, however, that once we're into it, they may, uh, in fact, uh, start inspecting. On Wednesday, Oregon set a new pandemic record for hospitalizations, according to the Oregon Health Authority. Director Pat Allen, they were, uh, or rather, there were 665 people with coronavirus in the hospital, which surpasses the previous record of 635 set on Tuesday. Now, across Oregon, many hospitals have been forced to postpone procedures because COVID-19 has filled so many beds with severely ill patients, we're told by the governor, that they don't have the staff to perform procedures that people need. But hospitals can safely delay. Um, the Oregon Health Authority reported that nearly 100 percent of new cases are linked to the Delta variant. According to the Oregon Health and uh, 
and Science University, 30% of patients in intensive care units across the state of Oregon are COVID-19 patients, the highest the state has seen since the beginning of the pandemic. Well, health officials said at least 95% of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 in the past several months have been unvaccinated. Governor Brown also announced that Oregon will require all state employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19 by the 18th of October or six weeks after a COVID-19 vaccine receives full FDA approval, which is expected in early September, whichever is later. The governor encouraged public and private employers to require vaccinations for their employees. I saw a, uh, the image of two nurses holding a sign pointing out that at the beginning of the pandemic, we were considered heroes. We worked under the worst of conditions without uh, the protection of a vaccine. Now we're uh, being staged as villains because we choose not to have the vaccine and we're being fired. Well, earlier this week, Multnomah County announced its own face mask mandate, regardless of vaccination status. The county's mandate begins on Friday, almost moot since the entire state is now plunged into the same set of conditions. Said Governor Brown, I know Oregonians are tired of wearing masks. I am, too. That's probably an understatement. But every time someone wears a mask, that's one more unvaccinated kid we're protecting. That mask could keep your best friend or loved one out of the hospital. We're in a crisis. That's what hospitals are already saying at capacity with the Delta spike incoming. That's a quote from the Oregon Health Science University. They released their latest COVID-19 forecast, as I mentioned a moment ago, and it shows a grim outlook for the fifth wave of the coronavirus in Oregon. Now, the charge is being led by the Delta variant, a much more transmissible strain that the origi- than the original COVID-19 strain that saw Oregonians homebound under a mask mandate and an economic freeze. Now, Thankfully, we're not being called to return to our homes at this point. Uh, But officials warn if action is not taken to flatten the curve now by implementing the use of masks and vaccines, social distancing and limited social gatherings, we will reach herd immunity through infection instead of vaccination. With 1.2 million people vulnerable to infection, hospitals will not be able to accommodate uh, if everyone gets sick all at once, which may be what uh, Oregon is facing, according to Dr. Peter Graven a um, data scientist at OHSU. This one forecast has some terrible and bad news, Gravin said. Uh, This virus is going to want to get to herd immunity real quick. The key is to slow down now so we can get up uh, our vaccination rates. We have about 1.2 million people who are still susceptible. And if they uh, all got infected at once, uh, which is kind of what we're looking at right now, we do not have room for the the share uh, that um, would be needed at the hospital. He says that hospitals are already overwhelmed. The chief medical officer at OHSU Health, Dr. Renee Edwards, said the situation in hospitals across Oregon is frankly dire and projected to get significantly worse. That's a quote. As of the 8th of this month, 554 patients with COVID-19 were in hospitals. And of the patients in ICU units, 30 percent are COVID positive patients and 95 percent of them are people who are unvaccinated. That's the highest percentage of ICU beds taken up by COVID patients that Oregon has seen throughout the pandemic. Well, the key resource that we're worried about, uh, she went on to say, is the hospital. And in that, the ICU. We are again reaching levels that uh, we have never seen since the pandemic began. The percent of occupied beds, uh, it's streaking past the highest percentages we've had. We are in crisis, Edwards went on to say, of the hospital capacity almost a month out from this wave's peak, which is projected to hit September the 7th.
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Morgan Tyree, author of Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity. Also want to remind you that there's an opportunity for you to spend a few days with your family in Colorado Springs and meet our friends at Focus on the Family during a trip that they're sponsoring. We're giving away a Focus on the Family VIP experience that includes round trip airfare for you and up to three family members to Colorado Springs, three nights at Great Lodge, Great Wolf Lodge, VIP tour of Focus on the Family headquarters, lunch with Jim Daly, an opportunity to sit in on a Focus on the Family program and a $300 visa gift card. All you need to do is log on to the KPDQ Family Club to enter today at kpdq.com. Again, kpdq.com. We've been talking about the governor's announcement earlier today that starting Friday, uh, we are required to um, wear face masks in indoor public places, all Oregonians five and older. Now, that uh, envelops the Multnomah County mandate that was to begin on Friday, and that's the same for the state of Oregon. This mandate begins on Friday. Well, to put it into perspective uh, with regard to vaccinations, as of Tuesday, 2,335,892 Oregonians have completed a COVID-19 vaccine series, and 2,526,326 have had at least one dose. Uh, In the past seven days, the state has administered an average of 5,345 doses per day. Of the new cases reported as of yesterday, Marion County had the most with 313, followed by Jackson County with 267, Lane County with 199. Multnomah County had 141, Washington County 128. Tuesday's record high case count included some new cases that were reported to uh, counties over the weekend, but OHA was unable to give an exact number for them. But that gives you, again, a bit of perspective. In terms of death, OHA released uh, the following information about the nine people who died. And I'll only mention their ages, um, 88 uh, 99, 90, 73, 76, 74, 67, 65, and 72 uh, underlying conditions were mentioned in uh, each one of them. These are Oregonians uh, who died after contracting COVID-19. We don't know if it's the Delta variant or the original, uh, but died uh, most recently. Well, on top of everything else, an excessive heat warning has uh, been put in effect beginning this afternoon through Saturday ahead of a four day stretch of dangerously hot weather. Temperatures in the Willamette Valley are likely to top 100 degrees for the next three days and cool only slightly on Saturday. I think it's still in the 90s on Saturday. Last I looked officially at Portland International Airport, we've hit uh, 103 times this summer and we're likely to track on at least two more this week, which would put another asteroid risk on an already hot summer of 2021. We've hit 90 degrees or better 19 times so far. The average is 12. Now, um, we'll take a uh, an edge off of the heat on Saturday, if only just a little bit, with high temperatures remaining in the mid-90s. More noticeable relief arrives on Sunday as the uh, surface wind, uh, we're told by meteorologists, turn more onshore uh, before cooling uh, weather in the Pacific air inland. So yay, it's coming. It's just not coming now. 
Well, of course, there are cooling centers around the area. You can call 211 if you want to locate one. But you should also know that TriMet will once again be offering fareless rides to cooling centers for those who cannot afford the fare on public transit as another excessive heat warning hits the area starting today. Now, the Public Transit Authority has dropped the 100-degree caveat it had instead had instituted rather during the last round of intense heat. Instead, this extends to anyone who cannot afford afford a ride beginning uh, today, um, and it started at noon. Well, due to the expected triple-digit heat, TriMet uh, warned there may be delays and reduced speeds of the max lines. Uh, it suggests riders should plan a little extra time and check TriMet.org slash alerts before traveling. Uh, so that's just one caveat in terms of how they're going to be moving. Max orange and green lines may be delayed once temperatures climb over 90. All max lines will be delayed at 100 degrees and west uh, will be delayed at 100 degrees and replaced by a shuttle bus at 105 degrees. I might uh, belief is that we're not expected to reach 105, but these days, who knows? Well, beginning Thursday through at least Saturday, due to the excessive heat and high overnight temperature, all max lines will reduce speeds by 10 miles per hour, and that's a certainty beginning on Thursday in higher uh, speed areas when temperatures reach 90, except about 15 minute, de- expect rather about 15 minute delays. So just a brief overview of what you can expect as you're referring others perhaps to the max line or considering using it yourself. Meanwhile, Oregon House Minority Leader Christine Drazen, she ripped Democrat Governor Kate Brown for dropping reading and math proficiency requirements for students before high school graduation. We've had Democrat control in Oregon for a decade, and this is entirely the handiwork of Democrats in Oregon, Drazen told America's Newsroom. Drazen is a Republican, said that parents absolutely deserve to have their children prove competency in reading, writing, and mathematics. But for whatever reason, and we know the reason, Democrats in Oregon have abandoned our kids, Drazen said. Well, Governor Brown signed Senate Bill 744 last month, which drops the education requirement throughout the state. According to the Oregonian, the governor seemed to keep the bill under wraps and away from the public eye, neglecting to issue a press release or hold any kind of signing ceremony. We can imagine why. Well, Drazen, again, minority leader, called Brown's move another bad decision, adding that it's part of a long list of issues in Oregon that comes straight to the question of leadership. We have Democrat leadership in our state that has taken our state in the wrong direction, she says. Now they're adding our kids to that. They're not holding them to the standards and providing them certainty when they get uh, all um, the all, all of high school behind them. Uh, they, they can't be assured that they can read, write, or do math. And parents are, uh, needless to say, fuming. Well, in other news, uh, CNN's Chris Cuomo has remained silent when confronted by uh, Fox News on his brother Andrew Cuomo's resignation. CNN star Chris Cuomo spent several hours on his speedboat on Tuesday, then returned to the dock to face a Fox News reporter's questions about the earlier resignation announcement by his older brother, Andrew Cuomo. The New York governor was forced to resign from office amid the storm of sexual harassment allegations and promised to do so at the time yesterday in 14 days. Have you spoken to your brother today, sir? A Fox News reporter asked the CNN host. 
Uh, of course I have, Cuomo replied. Did you advise him to step down? The CNN, uh, CNN star did not respond. Well, the soon-to-be former governor's younger brother has a uh, slip and private parking spot for his double-engine speedboat, Heartstrong, at the uh, marina, which was established all the way back in 1797. He pulled it without uh, incident Tuesday evening, even as the occupants of the neighboring slip had trouble tying up. In the parking lot, Chris Cuomo stopped to sarcastic, uh, sarcastically claim his his brother would be down at the Sag Harbor Yacht Yard in five minutes if you wait around. Earlier off camera, he implied uh, that he could have the Fox News reporter arrested by state troopers, stating he called uh, to tell them not to uh, to get you. I think you have a job and I'm going to let you do it, Cuomo said as he approached his truck. So it wasn't a very productive exchange from one reporter to another. In other developments, Andrew Cuomo is resigning, but criminal probes could still move forward. It's not altogether clear that will be the case. Representative Zeldin points out that Cuomo needed to resign after the nursing home scandal and shady book deal, but that didn't happen. Meanwhile, celebrities who once fawned over the governor are now nowhere to be found, seen or heard. A Virginia teacher resigned at a school board meeting denouncing their highly politicized agendas. A Loudoun County public school teacher in Virginia resigned in front of the school board, stating in a defiant and emotional speech that she refused to continue pushing their highly politicized agendas. Within the last year, I was in one of my so-called equity trainings with uh, that white, Christian, able-bodied females currently have the power in our schools, and this has to change, teacher Laura Morris said during the public comment period on Tuesday's board meeting. Clearly, you've made your point. You no longer value me or many other teachers you've employed in this county. So since my contract outlines the power that you have over my employment in Loudoun County Public Schools, I thought it necessary to resign in front of you. School board, I quit, she said, choking up. She added, I quit your policies. I quit your training. I quit being a cog in a machine that tells me to push a highly politicized agenda to our most vulnerable constituents, children. Morris, a fifth grade teacher, also alleged that the county warned her not to express dissenting views. A spokesperson said that uh, LCPS does not comment on personal matters. However, multiple teachers have said that they felt intimidated about potentially opposing the school's so-called equity training as well. Well, Loudoun County residents held their own school board meeting after the district changed the speaking rules to avoid hearing from parents. But they heard from at least one teacher. Still, the Virginia school board saw a contentious emotional meeting as it weighed their gender related policies. Parents in America's heartland are pushing back against critical race theory, declaring we are at the last line or we are rather the last line of defense. And L.A. Times um Editorial pushed critical race theory, saying it needs to be part of the ethnic studies course in high schools. Well, OutKick founder Clay Travis talks uh, rather absurdly of masks as the Tennessee school board voted to require them. He spoke out at a heated Tennessee school board meeting Tuesday, where members eventually voted to require masks for students, staff and visitors inside buildings and buses at the elementary school level. We'll tell you what he had to say when we come back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in our second hour, you'll hear from Morgan Tyree. He's the author of Take Back Your Time. Well, just before the break, we were talking about OutKick founder Clay Travis talking 
um, about masks uh, as the Tennessee school board voted to require them. He spoke out at a heated Tennessee school board meeting, which seems to be a theme these days, where members eventually voted to require masks for students, staff and visitors inside the buildings and buses at the elementary school level. So the school put a mask mandate in place only for elementary school students, those 5 to 11. The school ages least at risk from COVID in the entire country. All mask mandates are unscientific madness, he said. But young kids being forced to wear masks makes the least possible sense, he tweeted after the vote. Well, Travis, who has two children in Williamson County Schools, had rallied against the requirement of masks, saying local school board members should be ashamed of the choices they were about to make. He argued masks in schools made zero sense. I feel bad for all these people walking around in masks, engaging in cosmetic theater thinking um, that they are making a difference about COVID. They aren't, he said. Uh, here's the truth. Our kids under 25 years old, one in a million chance that they're going to uh, die of COVID. Those numbers are not quite accurate. They're more likely to be struck by lightning. They're more likely to die of seasonal flu. Well, every parent has to make the decision unless the decision has been made for them, as has been the case most recently here in the state of Oregon. Beginning on Friday, masks will be worn by all. Dr. Fauci and other developments uh, backed COVID-19 vaccine mandates for teachers. Austin and Dallas schools are implementing new mask mandates, contravening Governor Abbott's ban against them. And Oregon will reinstate the indoor mask mandate on Friday, will require some state employees to get vaccinated as well. President Biden is checking to see if he has the power to intervene against Florida and Texas mask mandate bans. He's already declared twice that he does not, but that didn't uh, matter when it came to um, taking care of uh, rents and having that postponed. Well, Texas House Speaker has signed arrest warrants for the absent Democratic lawmakers. A California college professor set the arson fire near the Dixie Fire, according to authorities. And the CDC has adjusted the Florida COVID-19 numbers after the health department called them out. Elon Musk was paid $6.7 billion in 2020, 11 times more than the next highest paid U.S. CEO. And Saks Fifth Avenue and WeWork are teaming up to open office space in luxury stores. Well, on the Surfside condo collapse, the first responders will receive a $1,000 bonus for their work. A Tennessee uh, Nissan plant will close for two weeks due to the chip shortage. And Norton LifeLock has agreed to buy cybersecurity provider Avast. Well, upon Cuomo's resignation, President Biden says he did, well, a heck of a job. He used different words, but there you have it. Strange words to describe a man who resigned amid multiple sexual harassment allegations and whose COVID decisions are believed to have led to the deaths of thousands of elderly. Byron York points out, for getting the COVID experience, President Biden praises Andrew Cuomo's job performance as opposed to his personal behavior. He's done a heck of a job. He's done a heck of a job. That's why it's so sad. End quote. Charles Cook says Andrew Cuomo is the three term governor of the fourth most populous state in the country. He is the son of an extremely famous man who served as governor of New York himself and the sibling of a CNN host who has routinely used his position to prop his brother up in pushing back against the uh, charges that have been leveled against him. Cuomo had the help of an organization that was ostensibly created to prevent sexual harassment, as well as some of the most influential advocacy outlets in all of American politics. As John uh, Podhertz uh, noted last week, Cuomo's entire game was his limitless willingness 
to use intimidation to get his way and a limitless capacity to intimidate. For years, Cuomo got away with what he did because people feared him and the machine he represented. If there is a better example of culturized and institutionalized sexism than this, I'm struggling to find it. You can read more on that in National Review. The New York Post said upon the announcement, the New York uh, lawmakers applauded. Actor Alec Baldwin called the resignation tragic and blamed cancel culture. David Harson, you noted, Cuomo is responsible for the deadliest mistake of the coronavirus pandemic when he compelled nursing homes to accept elderly patients who had already tested positive for COVID-19. It's possible that around 11,000 New Yorkers died because of his actions. One might defend the governor by noting that health officials were still grappling with COVID at the time, even though others, including media's Archivalian Ron DeSantis, had revered, uh, reversed similar nursing home decisions faster. Jim Garrity points out on Twitter, I mean, if Joe Biden had lived in a New York assisted care facility in 2020, there's a decent chance Cuomo's policies would have gotten him killed. And finally, Carol Platt LeBeau says as awful as Cuomo's alleged sexual harassment is, he's actually escaping accountability for even graver wrongdoing. The deaths of some 15,000 New Yorkers in nursing homes that he forced to accept COVID patients. After that, he covered up the true death toll among the elderly. It's not clear whether or not the investigation into that and other offenses will move forward once he is out of office in some 13 days. President Biden announced that he is checking to see if he has the power to force masks in all schools. The president said Tuesday that his administration is examining whether he can order universal masking in public schools, overriding Republican governors in states like Florida and Texas. I don't believe that I do have that power thus far, the president told reporters during an event in the East Room of the White House. We're checking on that. Another story notes, while Biden doesn't sound confident, this is exactly the type of tone he took prior to extending the eviction moratorium. He claimed he didn't have the power originally, yet under pressure from the left, he did so anyway, admitting that it was likely illegal. Look for him to do the same this time, with the likely idea being that by the time any challenge makes its way through the courts, the Delta wave will be waning. In the meantime, children would be forced to suffer for no reason whatsoever. Red State points out there is no science behind the masking of children. And by the way, that is an accurate statement. It may seem uh, absurd, but there hasn't been uh, a study confirming that. And that was uh, affirmed by the CDC and the NIH. The U.S. government is uh, using taxpayer dollars to harvest parts from unborn babies for research. Dr. Albert Moeller points out our federal government, through the Department of Health and Human Services and the National Institutes of Health, is actively seeking fetal parts, tissue, organs for medical experimentation, particularly here, what's described as... um, Well, I can't pronounce the word properly, so I won't attempt it. But these uh, body parts that they're looking for a fetus is between six and 42 weeks of gestation. Let that settle in and all of its horror. We're talking about unborn babies between six and 42 weeks of development. But then again, if you're talking about 40 weeks of development, just consider you're talking about babies that are full term and viable. Well, DC Comics has decided to make Robin, Batman's sidekick, gay, and he'll be going on a date with a man just to prove it. Now, really, do we need to know the sexual orientation of fictitious superheroes? From Sebastian Gorka, he says they destroyed Star Wars, they destroyed Star Trek, they destroyed Wonder Woman, now Batman, such business illiterates. He wrote on Twitter. From the Supreme Court, the governor can order the arrest of runway... um, 
Democrats halting a judge's order preventing Governor Greg Abbott from arresting them. The Texas House has authorized the sergeant at arms to arrest them and bring them back. If they ever return, YouTube has suspended Rand Paul for explaining the science behind masks. Censorship by YouTube is very dangerous as it um, stifles debate and promotes groupthink where the truth is uh, defined by people with a political agenda. End quote. Subway owners are facing a boycott as the general public is disgusted uh, by their spokeswoman, Megan. Megan. Rapino. I got it right. Thank you, Clark. Uh, to choose an athlete who disparages America and much of what it stands for was questionable decision to begin with. Now some owners are asking the company to pull her ad. So subway owners are uh, facing a boycott. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue to wind our way through the news in the first segment of the uh, uh, next hour. There's a lot to cover, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Five o'clock hour, we're going to hear from Morgan Tyree, author of Take Back Your Time. We're continuing to wind down through a considerable number of news stories. Well, there were death threats caused uh, that caused a billboard company to remove a pro-life message. A group of Christians commissioned a billboard in Texas calling for citizens to ignore Roe versus Wade. One day later, the display was removed because nearby landowners received death threats. Well, the billboard, which was uh, paid for by Abolish Abortion Texas and was located in a rural area outside the city of Boyd, contained only the words 62 million dead and counting and ignorerow.com. The website explains that because the Supreme Court of the United States has ignored the God-given rights of unborn children since Roe versus Wade was passed in 1973, Texas has a moral duty to ignore the court's opinion. A fifth grade teacher resigned in front of her school board over their progressive agenda and um, the Texas Supreme Court ruled Tuesday to allow for the arrest or detention of Democratic lawmakers who fled the state to obstruct an election reform bill spearheaded by the GOP. Republican Governor Greg Abbott vowed to send out warrants for the arrest of the Democratic defectors upon their return and force the chamber to conduct business to advance that legislation and a lot of other legislation. Well, on Sunday, a state district judge gifted the House uh, Democrats a temporary restraining order prohibiting their detainment, confinement or arrest for two weeks. Abbott and House Speaker Dade Fellon Uh, They uh, petitioned the high court Monday to overturn the arrest freeze from the lower court, according to the Texas Tribune. Well, granting them that request, Tuesday's decision from the the, uh, Texas Supreme Court reverses the earlier order protecting the Democrats from arrest, at least for now. The House Democrats involved in the lawsuit have a deadline of Thursday at 4 p.m. to respond to the court. Well, a mother in Atlanta filed a federal discrimination complaint against an elementary school alleging the school segregated students based on race. We've lost sleep like trying to figure out why would a person do this? Kyla Posey, who is black, told local media. First, it was just disbelief that I was having this conversation in 2020 with a person that looks just like me, a black woman. It's segregating classrooms. You cannot segregate classrooms. You can't do it. My community, had they known about this, would probably be extremely upset, not just the black parents, but also white parents, uh, Posey added. Well, Posey, the African-American 
a mother of a student, said that the practice was put in place last year by Mary Lynn Elementary School by Principal Sharon Briscoe, who is also black. She explained that black students were put in two classes with two different teachers, while white students were put in six classes with six different teachers. She found out about the segregation when she asked Briscoe to place her child with a teacher who she thought would be a good fit. She recalled to the news outlet, she said, that's not one of the black classes. And I immediately said, what does that mean? I was confused. I asked for more clarification. I was like, uh, we have those in the school. And she proceeded to say, yes, I have decided that I'm going to place all of the black students in two classes. Posey recounted of her conversation with the principal. Well, the principal reportedly told the mother that her child would be isolated if they were put in a white class. The mother explained to her she shouldn't be isolated or punished because I'm unwilling to go along with your illegal and unethical practice. Well, Posey also recorded a conversation with an assistant principal who confirmed it was Briscoe's decision to implement the segregated classes. I just wish we had more black kids and then some of them are in a class because of the services that uh, they need, the administrator said on the recording. Well, the school now faces a discrimination complaint, which was filed with the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. And Posey, the mom, added that she wants the principal and her administration removed from their positions for the segregation. Title seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 says that you cannot treat one group of people differently based upon race. And that is what is going on in uh, at Mary Lynn Posey, the lawyer. Uh, has said the Atlanta public schools said it conducted and wrapped up an investigation into the concerns of segregation, adding that appropriate actions were taken in the matter. Atlanta public schools uh, do not condone the assigning of students to classrooms based on race. The district conducted a review of the uh, allegations. Appropriate actions were taken to address the issue and the matter was closed End quote. Well, Atlanta public schools didn't immediately respond to for clarification. Briscoe also didn't immediately respond to a request for comment on the matter briscoe being the uh, the principal and it's not clear what uh, remediation the school undertook well the 19,000 member christian medical and dental association which is the nation's largest faith-based healthcare organization responded today to its victory in federal court to protect the conscience rights of healthcare professionals earlier this week a federal court in texas blocked a harmful white house administration policy known as the transgender mandate which would force religious doctors and hospitals to perform gender transition procedures on their patients including children even when the procedures can be medically harmful the case of franciscan alliance versus becerra was brought um, to the Christian Medical and Dental Association, a group of religious hospitals in nine states. And this is now the second court ruling blocking the administration from enforcing that policy. Well, a federal court has blocked President Biden's mandate that would require doctors to perform these uh, surgeries against their conscience And that's good news. The National Institutes of Health spent almost three million dollars in taxpayer dollars on the University of Pittsburgh project to harvest human organs and tissues from live aborted babies based on the child's race. The NIH announced last April that the Department of Health and Human Services has reversed a policy put in place under President Trump that halted all NIH funded research using aborted fetal tissue. In fact, documents show that the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, where Dr. Anthony Fauci serves as chief of the laboratory of immunoregulation, requested more than three point two million dollars in federal funds over a five year period for the University of Pittsburgh's human fetal tissue harvesting. 
The Center for Medical Progress, represented by Judicial Watch, sued the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services for its failure to respond to a Freedom of Information Act request in April of last year for information that includes University of Pittsburgh grant applications for a tissue hub and collection site. Uh, the um, Center for Medical Progress and Judicial Watch have now obtained a 252-page document that has uncovered the university's project to become a tissue hub for human fetal tissue ranging from 6 to 42 weeks gestation. And Liberty Council has secured religious exemptions from the COVID-19 injection of on behalf of more than 40 students after Loyola University originally denied their requests. All Loyola students who have contracted uh, Liberty Council after their exemptions were wrongfully denied, have now been granted exemptions uh, and are allowed to remain enrolled for f- the fall semester. If Loyola unenrolls any student who asked for a religious exemption, Liberty Council is prepared to file a lawsuit. But uh, at this point, they have secured religious exemptions for these 19 students. In other news, while the president is uh, checking to see if he can overrule states and order universal masks in schools, pediatricians say masking and social distancing is impacting child development. Democrat Congressman Ron Kind is retiring, and that is damaging his party's hopes of controlling the House in 2022. The NSA inspector general has opened an investigation into allegations of illegal spying on Tucker Carlson and President Biden's nominee for assistant secretary for defense and nuclear proliferation claims Iran is not pursuing nuclear weapons contrary to the evidence. Huh. Evidence to the contrary. Rather puzzling. The Taliban has completed uh, their northeast Afghan blitz as three more provincial capitals have fallen. Well, a man thought to have shouted the N-word at a Colorado Rockies game was apparently misunderstood. There was just one problem with all of this. Video of the incident shows the fan in question wasn't even looking at the black player, Brinson, or the game at all. He's looking at the Rockies mascot, which is named Dinger, D-I-N-G-E-R, waving to him and calling out his name. Hysteria averted, but not before it was reported by all the major news outlets. In the annals of, uh, well, integrity, proud American Olympic athlete Tamra Mensa Stock used her prize money to buy her widowed mom a food truck she's wanted, well, forever. And I quit your policy, says one teacher who's just, well, quit, put out. The Fiji men's rugby team, they sang a worship song on the field. Uh, It was beautifully done, and you could tell they sang it with real conviction. If you have the opportunity to look it up, it's worth sitting through, even though they speak a language you may not speak. But again, they sang a worship um, song on the field during the Olympics. That's the Fiji men's rugby team. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then we'll be back to, uh, well, share a little more news, and you'll have the opportunity to hear from Morgan Tyree. Take back your time. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Uh, today we're going to hear from Morgan Tyree. He's the author of Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity. We'll also talk about some major takeaways from the International Religious Freedom Summit that was held in mid-July. 
More on that uh, later in the program as well. Well, an Ivy League um, analysis just destroyed the president's biggest argument, job creation for the infrastructure bill. And Dominion Voting Systems is suing Newsmax and OAM for defamation. The Department of Justice plans to review 9-11 files regarding the role of Saudi Arabia following families' criticism, 9-11 families' criticism of and his disinvitation, if such a word exists, to uh, commemoration events that are coming up next month. Well, on this day in history, 1949, President Harry S. Truman nominates General Omar Bradley to become the first chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 1984, at the Los Angeles Olympics, American runner Mary Decker falls after colliding with South African-born British competitor Zola Budd. In the 3,000-meter final, Bud finishes seventh. Oh, that was a sad day. 1992, the Mall of America, the nation's largest shopping entertainment center, opens in Bloomington, Minnesota. 2012, Republican presidential contender Mitt Romney announces his choice, Representative Paul Ryan of Wisconsin, to be his running mate. And on this day in history, 2012, Usain Bolt, he caps his perfect London Olympics by leading Jamaica to victory in a world record 36.84 seconds in the four by 100 meters. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, a federal judge ordered Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, to allow a weekend rally of white nationalists and other extremists to take place at its originally planned location downtown. Deadly violence would erupt at the rally when a man plows his car into a group of counter protesters. Well, the Senate voted yesterday to advance the behemoth infrastructure bill debated for weeks by Congress. That proposal is a Trojan horse that's going to pave the way for a larger, more radical budget reconciliation bill also passed in the Senate. And its supporters on the left are not even attempting to hide their agenda uh, heritage uh, policy analyst David Ditch uh, released a statement that said this, make no mistake, final passage of this proposal is a necessary first step for approval of Democrats, a $3.5 trillion behemoth budget reconciliation package waiting on deck. Republicans support for the infrastructure deal will enable the biggest tax and spend legislation in history. Well, the infrastructure plan barely spends any funds on actual infrastructure. It embeds uh, ideology in the Department of Transportation. It breaks from the bipartisan understanding that infrastructure costs should be covered by the people who use it. Worse, the deal will add hundreds of billions of dollars to the national debt, which is already $220,000 per household. The $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation monstrosity that will follow uh, the infrastructure will likely include amnesty for illegal immigrants, a massive expansion of the welfare state, uh, tax hikes, a Green New Deal 2.0 is going to bring the 2021 spending spree to a whopping $6.5 trillion. Um, that amounts to over $50,000 for every household in the country and is more than the cost of World War II and Obamacare combined after adjusting for inflation, which is also up. Well, these uh, spending plans will only push uh, inflation higher and mock the concerns Americans have about out-of-control spending. Well, ditch emphasis uh, that the results of this uh, spending would be more centralized power and control for legislators and bureaucrats in Washington. It would create a cradle to grave welfare state that is antithetical to the principles America was founded on and will result in higher taxes, slower growth and potentially disastrous inflation. Well, this uh, spending spree, which to me seems reckless, will move America further from the principles that uh, have made it the greatest nation in the history of the world and Congress. If it doesn't reverse course and recover its fiscal sanity as soon as possible, will plunge us into just 
that. Well, an Ivy League uh, analysis just destroyed the president's argument for this bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, the $1 trillion, it's actually $1.1 trillion bill, has reportedly cleared major hurdles. Um, at least um, the uh, the president's predictions were addressed by the Ivy League. The promised long-term economic benefits from the sweeping uh, ex- expenditure will likely never materialize, and that's according to a new Ivy League analysis. Well, this runs directly against the president's promises that it would create jobs and stimulate the economy. Indeed, the president has insisted that the government spending plan will create millions of good paying jobs. Well, this bill makes key investments to put people to work all across the country. The president said it's going to put Americans to work in good paying union jobs, building and repairing our roads, bridges, ports and airports. He additionally claimed that the plan is a blue collar blueprint for economic opportunity because supposedly 90 percent of the jobs created will not require a college degree. Well, this uh, rhetoric is likely to appeal to many Americans. In fact, it has. But the aforementioned analysis by the Wharton Business School pours cold water on the president's promise. In stark contrast to millions of good jobs created, the Ivy League analysis project that the plan would um, have a net zero effect on employment, wages and employment growth over both the medium term by 2031 and the long term by 2050. Now, let me repeat that because this is a direct contradiction. In stark contrast to millions of good jobs created, the Ivy League analysts project uh, says uh, says rather that the plan would have uh, a net zero effect on employment, net zero effect on wages, net zero effect on economic growth over both the medium term and the long term. And despite these um, uh, results, the legislation would still add a whopping three hundred and fifty one billion dollars to the national debt. Uh, for context, that's roughly two thousand four hundred and forty nine dollars in new debt per federal taxpayer. So, uh, again, Putting it into uh, into some perspective. Well, the Senate voted early today to uh, pass the framework of the hotly contested three point five trillion dollar budget reconciliation package after a nearly 15 hour long um, uh, vote arama in Washington, D.C. And if there was any um, camaraderie on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, it seemed to have taken a holiday after this vote. Well, the vote was procedural and the initial step in the budget reconciliation pro- uh, process that does not require both parties to uh, uh, to weigh in. It could eventually allow Democrats to pass the package without a single Republican vote. The vote on Wednesday was 50 to 49 and straight down party lines. Senator Pat Toomey said the resolution paves the way for legislation that would redefine the very role of the federal government in the lives of average Americans, all under a 50-50 Senate, a razor-thin majority in the House, and a president who was elected on moderation. Uh, Senate Republicans forced the Democrats during this uh, debate to take tough votes on issues ranging from critical race theory to abortion to fracking during that 14 hour voterama, as they're calling it on Tuesday and Wednesday, as they put up a resistance to the budget resolution that opens the door for Democrats to pass that three point five trillion dollar spending plan. Well, that voterama in which senators can bring non-binding amendments up for votes until well they get tired of doing so is a necessary procedural step in the budget reconciliation process. Democrats are using that process to sidestep the legislative filibuster in the Senate, therefore allowing them to pass it, uh, this wish list of programs without input from the Republicans. And it appears that they will be uh, successful in doing just that. We'll continue to keep our eyes uh, focused. And as you know, on the House side, 
Nancy Pelosi has said that they will not even consider the one point one trillion infrastructure bill uh, unless it is linked and passed alongside the reconciliation bill. So this is um, given what's happened in the Senate, essentially a pretty done deal changing the um, the nation as we have known it. It was a promise made by Obama. It was a promise made by Biden, but one that he is very likely to carry out reflecting uh, the priorities of the squad and not what he campaigned on during the um, campaign season. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Morgan Tyree, author of Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity. We'll also take a look at the uh, takeaways from the International Religious Freedom Summit. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, let's be honest. Managing our time can be an overwhelming struggle for many of us. It doesn't matter what season of life we're in. Finding balance and direction is an ongoing battle when so many things are fighting for our attention. Well, in her new book, Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity, professional organizer and blogger Morgan Tyree, she offers a practical guide to conquer stress and increase productivity using her three-color time zone system. I know what you might be thinking. Oh, no, I'm not sure I can organize in that way. But she shows readers how to create a three-color time zone system of green for focus on tasks, yellow for multitasking, and red for downtime. Stay with me now. And she shows readers how to coordinate life activities and tasks into these three zones and how to protect them. She also addresses how to identify the most productive times every day, how to regulate uh, between essentials and non-essentials and match time zones with your capacities. Now, it may sound complicated. Complicated, but trust me, it's uh, doable. Morgan Tyree, she knows what it's like to have to manage her time well. She earned her BS degree in business administration with an emphasis in small business and entrepreneurship from the University of Oregon, my alma mater, and has worked in the fields of marketing, management, and human resources. She blogs weekly at Morganize With Me and contributes monthly to the popular blog Organizing Junkie. She and her husband, David, have three children and live in Fort Collins, Colorado, but she joins us today by phone to talk about her book, Take back your time, identify your priorities, decrease stress, and increase productivity. Hey, thank you so much for joining us, Morgan. Yes, thank you for having me. I am so excited to be here. Now, you write in Take Back Your Time um, that it was born from your own personal and profound experience of living through five seasons. And you're not referring to the seasons uh, on the calendar, but you're referring to seasons in life. Share what those seasons looked like and what experiences helped you shape this book that will help us shape our lives perhaps more effectively. Yes, for sure. So I identified and I looked back just kind of where I've been from, from graduating college to now, and I went through a season of being in a more traditional work environment, you know, focusing on career, and then I stayed home for a season and had our children. I even spent a season of homeschooling, and then we moved abroad, which was a very unique and different season, and then currently we're now back in the States, and I've been running my own business now, and so really just put that hat on of being an entrepreneur. And so I just learned that it's been interesting how each season has a lot of uniqueness to it and that I've had to orchestrate my time differently. And then now as I currently help people with time management and organizing their homes and businesses, I've gleaned a lot of what can work and what doesn't work and how to really encourage people 
with our time management. Mm-hmm. My husband has recently retired, and I was intrigued by the fact the book doesn't just deal with those who are overwhelmed by their full calendars, but you explain that having too much time can be just as challenging as having too little time. Most of us would probably like to live with that challenge, but um, why is it so challenging to have too much time as well as too, or I should say, too little? Yeah, well, I think what, what the challenge is there, and I, and I really did experience this firsthand when we moved abroad because my life took a complete different direction and a lot of my purpose and priorities sort of diminished and I had to kind of recreate my time and schedule. And I think that like, you know, someone retiring or having a major life change, there is often that reality that our time isn't as focused for us or maybe as structured for us. And while it's not necessarily a negative thing, it can be a little harder to stay motivated or to structure your time because there's not as many boundaries on your time. You may have so much time that maybe you end up almost doing less or not being as productive as you could be because there's more, you know, there's plenty of time that goes Mm -hmm. around. So it's that intentionality piece. I want people to think about how can I be intentional whether I have a lot of time or a little bit of time, either way. You write that your time is a responsibility, it's a privilege, and a gift. Talk a little bit about that, because our perspective on time might help us have the gumption, if you will, to try to manage it well. Yeah, well, our time, I mean, obviously it's fixed for all of us. We all have, you know, 24 hours in a day. And we also, you know, our days are numbered in that that sense, too. And so, I think that when we are reminded of that and we think of our time as a gift, as something that we should be stewarding well and steering our time, it can help, again, with that mindset of intentionality. It doesn't mean that we're always being productive, but rather that we're focused on where we're going. So I feel like a lot of times we'll say that certain things are a priority in our lives, but then we aren't actually prioritizing them. And I just think that we have to be really careful to not fall into complacency with our time. Mm -hmm. You discussed the need to embrace uh, your current season, and you spoke a few moments ago about uh, various seasons in your life. Uh, Before we start, uh, we can start to manage our time. We need to embrace uh, the current season that we're in. What do you mean by that? And how do we identify a season? What makes up a season? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I think that there's a couple of ways to look at it. And I say the word embrace because I think sometimes we don't always choose all the parts of our season of life. You know, so there's that, there's an acceptance piece maybe too, because not all of our choices are ours entirely. Mm-hmm. And so I want to always give grace there. But I, I recommend in the book really taking a look at your time um, as, as you already are using it. And you can do a time log and, and log your time for a week and really see where your time is already being spent. And in doing so, you can hopefully identify some of your main purposes in your season. And so that may be a a career or that may be raising your children or that may be volunteering. You may have different things that are on your plate for this season. So I think a lot of times where you're spending your time will help you identify the purposes, but it can also help you see maybe where you're not using your time as um, fruitfully as possible because sometimes we'll think we spend all these hours doing something and then in reality it's opposite or vice versa you know things are taking a lot longer than we may realize so that can help really kind of hone in on what what am I really being called to do right now because we can't do everything yeah prioritize. Yeah, that's such a a wise uh, approach because we sometimes imagine that we can do everything in a single season when we have a lifetime in which to to do certain things that fit with where we happen to be at that time. So that's such a wise approach and gives us, I would imagine, a little bit of of peace knowing that I don't have to do everything today. Yeah, I think I hope it gives people freedom because and I would know I would never want to discourage people from 
you know, staying on a path towards a dream or working towards a goal. But I do think there is likely some seasons that are more conducive to certain things than others. And so, and that's going to be very individual, but I think self-awareness and even speaking to people that know you well and, and asking them, you know, do you think I'm, how am I doing in this area with my time or am I reaching these goals? And yeah. Bouncing that off can help too. You point out that all times of the day are not created equal. Are there times that naturally are more productive for us or is it unique to each individual? There are night people, there are morning people. Um, how do we determine which parts of the day um, are, are likely to be more useful to us? Mm-hmm. So some of that can, can be helpful um, from the time log. That may be something that if you, if you log your time for a week, it may kind of bring some things to your attention and you could see some trends. Or you may just know that about yourself. Some people are very clear, like they'll say, I'm a morning person or I'm a night owl, and that's very much they, they know that. I know for me, in my afternoons, I tend, to, I tend to hit a lull. And I've shifted over the years. I used to be a night owl. I'm definitely now more of a of an early bird. So I think it's kind of looking at how you, what you naturally do. And there may be um, some some things you might want to do to increase discipline if you have certain demands at certain times of the day that you need to be more productive. But if you can press into kind of how you are hardwired and also how that how your natural rhythms work, it can be really helpful. Now, you uh, have come up with a three-color method, and as I was uh, trying to just give the highlights, it may sound very complicated to our listeners, but first, let's just talk about how you came up with the idea. Yeah, well, you know, it really spurred from the fact that I, I don't know, I've worked in the fitness industry a long time, and then now I do my professional organizing, so I do a lot of coaching with people, and really, what I'm providing is accountability, and what they're having me come in to help with is for them to focus on something, whether it's, you know, organizing a room or working on their time management or filing papers, whatever it is. And it's hard for us sometimes to uh, carve out the time that we want to carve out for things. And so that I've found that that's when I'm working with my clients, that is truly that green time zone. We are focusing on the task. We're setting down other things and we're, we're just really working on one task start to finish. And so I've, I've seen that that is, there's a place for that. But then I've also, from that, it rolled into, we also need times in our days where there's, um, there's the freedom to be flexible because especially a great example is parents. Parents usually have to be very flexible if they've got kids in the house because there's more interruptions and there's more demands on their time. Mm-hmm. And they're usually these start and stop things. And then I've also found for myself and, and for my clients, we all need to find ways to fill ourselves up. And that's how we can then have a foundation to be productive if we take care of ourselves as well. So it's just come from some personal experiences and trial and error and seeing what works and doesn't work. Now, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Morgan uh, Tyree. She's the author of Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity. She writes about it all in the book. We'll uh, be back in just a few moments to talk with her about it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Morgan Tyree. She's the author of Take Back Your Time, Identifying Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity. And don't we all want to do just that? Well, this is a practical guide to help us do that in a way that we can live with. Now, let's talk about how the productivity chart works and the role it plays in the, the time zones that you have created. Yeah, in the book, I have a chart where you can sort of identify those times in the day. I have like a, a three different star system. So 
ranking it, you know, your most productive time, least productive time, and maybe that middle time. And in doing so, that can help. And it will it will really depend on someone's um, particular, again, their life season or their workload or what they're having to coordinate. But in using that chart, it can also then help you as you look at your calendar and you look at your commitments and you're deciding when you're going to do what and also even what you're committing to if you're not really someone that likes evening activities, then maybe you will use that to not sign up for as many things in the evening or, you know, just as an example. So it's using the chart as kind of a guide for you with your commitments and choices. You encourage your readers to determine their purpose and priorities to help schedule the time better. I think oftentimes the tyranny of the urgent robs us of uh, spending the, the time that we really want to spend fulfilling our purpose and living out the priorities that we have set. Uh, how do we go about that? What are some of the practical steps that you can give to help people discover their purpose and priorities? Well, I think it's looking at, at your commitments and calendar currently and identifying those major kind of top purposes for your life. And I, I recommend really trying to hone in on maybe five at the most because Again, we can't do everything in each season necessarily, so we want to make sure we, we fine-tune what those purposes are and even listing those out. And the, the purpose is kind of a main category, and then under that you can list the different priorities or different parts that support that purpose. And then I think when we do that, it does make it easier to discern what we say yes and no to and maybe also what we need to be delegating more of, you know, what, what things are under our purpose right now that maybe we could delegate to it, you know, in another capacity. So that's my recommendation is to really look at it as kind of a, almost like a mission. Like, what is my mission right now? What are my purposes? Mm-hmm. You rec- uh, recommend that your uh, readers remove the word busy from uh, their vocabulary. Um, I think many of us would describe our lives as being busy or that we are busy. Why do you make that recommendation and why is that significant? Well, I don't know if I think it's a bad word, but I think it, it can tend to imply that it's, that busyness has just happened to us. And I want people to remember mm. that we we do have a lot of choice with our time. And I'm not by any means saying that everything is a choice, but I do think a lot of how we manage our time is going to boil back to what we've chosen to commit to or what we've taken on. And so I just, I want people to think of their time, again, as, as more of a responsibility and I give the alternative of saying, let's seek a full life. I don't think God wants us overwhelmed and overloaded all the time. Well, we have moments, absolutely. But I think a full life to me, and I give the analogy of like a cup of coffee, like we, you know, when we want a cup of coffee, we want a full cup, but we don't want a spilling over cup, you know, we don't want it. And we know also we don't want it half full, you know, we want that full cup. So I do think we're designed for fullness, but fullness should look more like peace. And I feel like busy implies more of like a panic mode. And I want us to move towards peace for sure. Oh, I love that. Uh, you also recommend minimizing interruptions. That that's key to productivity. And I think some of our listeners are probably chuckling, like, how is that even possible? Because interruptions are either self-induced or they um, are imposed on us by others. How how can we increase our productivity by minimizing interruptions? Well, there's a couple of things you can do intentionally. And one is to communicate when possible, you know, maybe clarifying what you need from whether it's people you work with or people you live with. Just if there's certain times you may need to be less interrupted, if you can communicate that on the front end, that can be helpful. And then there's also the tool of our digital devices and all the technology are great. They're, they're a great help, but they also can be a hindrance when we don't put some boundaries in place. So 
Well, I know, again, this will be very individual, but it's asking yourself, where could I use more boundaries with my, di- with my digital um, demands? Could I, you know, check my email hourly rather than every five minutes? Or could I turn off, do not disturb once in a while to really dig into mm-hmm. productive work? And so it's that intentionality. We can't minimize all interruptions. And then if you are working on some things during a time when it's just a very um, distracting time of your day, that would be the time to choose more of those flexible tasks, those, those things that maybe don't require as much focus, because then you'll be able to respond, like you mentioned, to people's you know, expectations or, or interruptions. Because there's times in our day we have to be available, and so we can't turn that off. But maybe being more intentional with what we're doing at that time can set us up for more success. Yeah, that's good. You um, bring up an interesting suggestion, uh, and that is about how personalities should be reflected in our schedules. Explain what you mean by that and how we can have a a schedule, how we spend our time that reflects uh, who we are in terms of our our personality. Mm -hmm. Well, I want people to, again, I mentioned self-awareness before. I Uh feel like the more we know ourselves the more we can feel confident in what we're being called to do and also what our strengths are and even what our weaknesses are. And that doesn't mean we um, become complacent, but, but that we know what we can do and really focus on not looking to the people around us. I mean, look to other people for motivation, but don't look at them as a form of comparison. You know, I feel like we should be able to, the more we can be secure with who we are and recognizing even our capacity levels. And I share in the book, I tend to have a higher energy level. I'm hardwired that way. But I know there's people in my home I live with who don't have as high of an energy level. And that's okay too. And so it's, it's, it's being at peace with how you're hardwired and then using your strengths to impact your time in the ways that work for you. And if you need more downtime, honoring that. But also for me, I need to honor the fact that I might be more prone to just go, go, go. And I should also make sure I'm carving out that downtime. So yeah. it's, it's honoring yourself, but also saying, how do I match the two? How do I honor myself, but also honor my time? Well, and you're, you're um, so wise and it's timely because we are so familiar now with comparing ourselves to others. Social media paints a picture that others' lives are so much rosier than ours and everything they do is fun and bright and cheerful and attractive. Uh, and that, that temptation toward comparison can really uh, disrupt our, our peace and prevent us from um, fulfilling our purpose and priorities. It's so true. And it's hard. I think it's hard not to, and we can't probably completely avoid mm-hmm. it. But I think that by, um, I think it's where we can press into the Lord and just say, give me, please give me peace with what I'm being called to do. You know, and I've also learned in my own life having patience because, for example, my time overseas was a hard season for me. I felt like I lacked a lot of purpose. And so it could have been easier for me to really compare. But I tried to say, Lord, what is it for me right now? What do I focus on? <laughs> and then just kind of keep my head down and do that, you know. And and again, use other people to spur you on, but not to discourage you. What is ultimately the goal? Once we've identified our priorities, our stress is, is relieved to whatever degree is possible, we're more productive. What's ultimately the goal? The goal for me is I want people to have more harmony in their life. And that in, in the three time zones are not meant to be something rigid. I think what we tend to do is we want like a rigid solution. Or if that doesn't work, then we just want to throw it out the window and just be super fluid. And I think our goal should be to be somewhere in the middle. There will be, be times to be maybe more rigid and times to be more fluid. But finding that sweet spot, and I use the word intentionality. I think if mm-hmm. we use that as a mindset, 
that can really guide and direct. And so it doesn't, none of this is necessarily a formula, but it's a mindset of, am I being intentional with this hour of time? Am I being intentional with this 24 hours? And remembering tomorrow you get a fresh start, you know, so we don't need to live with guilt. <laughs> we can focus on grace and, and start again tomorrow, which is always a refreshing reminder. Oh, is it not? <laughs> the book, once again, is titled <laughs> Take Back Your Time, Identify Your Priorities, Decrease Stress, and Increase Productivity. It's very practical. It's doable. And if you're looking to be better organized, this is a great way to do that in a way that takes into account just not where your papers go, <laughs> but how to order your life in a way that you can experience joy and peace as was intended. Morgan Tyree, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Really appreciate it. By the way, the book is published by Revell and is available everywhere. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, more than 30 faith traditions were represented at the inaugural International Religious Freedom Summit. It was held in Washington, D.C. between the 13th and the 15th of July. Well, the aim of this summit was to create a coalition of organizations that fight for international religious freedom for everyone, everywhere, all the time. Well, some of the takeaways from the International Religious Freedom Summit, uh, the uh, the uh, notion of international freedom should be a bipartisan issue. Now, that barely needs to be stated, but in a pretty polarized country that seems to view every issue as political, the summit was a clarion call for all Americans to come together on religious liberty. Now, even if Democrats and the Biden administration have taken a stark departure on religious liberty from past administrations, it's not often that you find both Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speaking in favor of the same thing. It was really quite a breathtaking moment. Well, by highlighting the suffering of religious people overseas, the International Religious Freedom Summit served to remind how religious liberty cannot be confined to a partisan agenda but rather extends beyond party politics as a basic condition for human flourishing. Well, as depoliticizing international religious freedom shows, religious freedom as a matter of fundamental human rights transcends partisan politics and ought to be supported at home and abroad by Democrats and Republicans alike. One of the takeaways from the International Religious Freedom Summit. Another, protecting religious freedom requires cross-faith partnership. It can't just be one uh, religion. It requires all to at least acknowledge uh, the fact that the freedom to express one's religion ought to be in place. Seventy-nine partners participated in this International Freedom Summit, Religious Freedom Summit, and although they represent different countries and faith traditions, they still support each other's freedom to pursue their own faith. Uh, to illustrate this, one session called In Solidarity with the Persecuted featured representatives from seven faith traditions speaking about the persecution of other faiths. And the U.S. interfaith collaboration can be seen taking place through the organization International Religious Freedom Roundtable, which brings together people from uh, a number of faith traditions. Well, cross-faith partnerships are critical, the summit pointed out, because ensuring religious freedom for all requires building friendships with those who disagree and not merely networking. Ambassador Sam Brownback urged attendees during the opening reception, saying we should share pictures of our families instead of business cards. Well, just as cross-faith partnerships are necessary to protecting religious freedom, so is a a variety of organizations that accomplish different kinds of work, from advocating for victims in court to providing material needs. Uh, Fighting for religious liberty requires a holistic perspective that engages the heart, the mind, and addresses all of the needs, spiritual, relational, legal, and material. 
Another takeaway, inhumane violations of human dignity still occur today. Now, within the Christian church, we certainly know that's the case. But the summit pointed out that while the 21st century prides itself on progress, our age is not immune to violations, rather, of basic human rights. Between 1.8 and 3 million Uyghurs, for example, in China have been sent to detention and re-education centers simply because of their religious beliefs. Now, China's gross mistreatment of Uyghurs reminds us that the greatest threat to religious freedom have always been and still are authoritarian regimes and ideologies. What's more, today, regimes like China are capable of even greater tyranny through the use of surveillance technology to suppress human rights. Another takeaway, religious persecution impacts real people. It's not just a vague concept impacting a vague group of um, of people. A Uyghur from China, uh, from the Jin Wan um, uh, County, um, shared her heart, uh, her heart-wrenching story of how she was detained and tortured for her Muslim faith, often suffering intense interrogation and sexual abuse as well. Her experience, along with similar experiences of others like Asia Bibi and Miriam Ibrahim demonstrates the important role stories play in bolstering religious freedom efforts. And above all, it's an important reminder that religious persecution always impacts real people. Another take uh, takeaway, wokeism, as we use it today, is an early warning to religious liberty threats. Reverend Bernard Randall, one of the uh, panelists who spoke at the side event sponsored by the Heritage Foundation's DeVos Center for Religious and Civil Society, is a testament to the threat wokeism poses to religious freedom. Um, as a chaplain of a Christian school in the UK, he was fired and reported as a terrorist threat for preaching a sermon in which he stated that students are free to believe marriage should be between a man and a woman and reject transgender ideology. Well, today, activists are seeking to impose radical gender ideology as orthodoxy and punish those who refuse to conform. Now, the increasing influence of authoritarian ideologies like this is always a threat to religious freedom, not just in the UK, but even here at home. Another takeaway, ideological colonization is threatening religious freedom. Let me explain what that means. Another panelist for the DeVos Center uh, side event shared how Western countries are uh, forcing their beliefs about sexuality on African countries through foreign aid. For example, countries or institutions in the West that support abortion will extend grants or aid to countries in Africa that do not support abortion only on the condition of societal change, namely increasing access to abortion. Now, this amounts to nothing less than ideological colonialism. Business um, businesses, rather philanthropists, influencers have also contributed to this colonialism. And unfortunately, similar threats to the democratic process are uh, cropping up in the U.S. as corporations are becoming increasingly politicized. And finally, another takeaway from this international gathering. Today's young people are tomorrow's defenders of religious freedom. One of the summit's goals was to raise up a global movement of young leaders committed to religious freedom through the Young Leaders Track, which was part of that event. According to the 2020 Beckett Religious Freedom Index, overall support for religious freedom has declined each subsequent generation. Now, working to counteract that trend, this year's summit, they helped to pave the way for the next generation of religious liberty advocacy by highlighting how fundamental yet fragile religious freedom is for human rights. 
Um, all in all, the summit spotlighted the good work of religious freedom advocates around the world, as well as the unjust treatment of many religious groups occurring today. All of this should inspire gratitude and urgency. Gratitude that we as Americans, at least, live in a nation where religious freedom is counted first among rights, at least technically. Urgency to fight boldly for religious freedom, which is increasingly under attack, is also uh, one of the um, the hallmarks. Ultimately, the uh, uh, broad support for international religious freedom displayed at the summit was a reminder that religious liberty should be a bipartisan issue. In the days to come, politicians and citizens should come together to ensure that it is preserved at home and abroad for generations to come. Again, some of the takeaways from the recent International Religious Freedom Summit that was held in mid-July, in which uh, 30 faith traditions were represented at the inaugural event. This is the first in what they hope will be an annual event of the International Religious Freedom Summit in Washington, D.C., Uh, The aim of that summit was to create a coalition of organizations that fight for international religious freedom for everyone, everywhere, all the time. So there you have it. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that James Blend is producer, Clark Hilton engineer, and to extend our gratitude for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow. And in the meantime, have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.